Good morning. The reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 18, the Song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have, received, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, we pray right now that your word only would be spoken, heard, and obeyed, that you would open our eyes to see your glory, our hearts to receive your love, and our minds to understand the depth of the grace that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you hear the word deliverance, what do you think of or what stories come to mind? Red Sea, excellent. Wait Way to, way to pluck that one out of the air. Uh, what else? Yeah, which one? Deliverance. Deliverance. <laughs> yeah, because what's his name? Just died this week, right? Bert, it was a Bert, Bert Reynolds. I was going to say Bert Lancaster. That was, that was a different Bert. Yeah. What else comes to mind when you hear the word deliverance? Think of Jesus, the word deliverance, and what do you think of? Deliverance from sin? From demons, right? Cast out demons? Uh, in our modern context, sometimes we think of deliverance as being uh, 
out of addiction, being delivered out of addiction. It's being delivered from something, something or some power which has held you captive or enslaved you. And it can be physical, but that thing that enslaves you can also be uh, mental or emotional, social, psychological or spiritual. Most times it's a combination of those things. The Exodus story is a story of deliverance. Deliverance from being physically in Egypt, but also deliverance mentally, emotionally and spiritually from slavery in Egypt. And it becomes the meta-story throughout the rest of the scriptures. That story of deliverance from Egypt is the touch point Israel will return to again and again and again whenever their story or, or whenever they find themselves in captivity or slavery again. The passage we read uh, that Jill just read for us uh, out of Exodus is a victory song. And it's a song that's meant to remind us of the entire story. When we hear that song, we ought to also think of the story of Moses' birth and the, the woman finding him in the, amongst the reeds. We ought to think about the burning bush and of Pharaoh and of the plagues and of the Passover and of the sea of reeds. But also what happens after the children of Israel uh, find their great deliverance. The song points to... Uh, points us to a helpful truth that we'll return to in a moment, but it's also a very important warning sign about deliverance. The song is a victory song. The words are things like, God has triumphed gloriously. The horse and riders fallen into the sea. The enemy has been vanquished. We are free. God is great. We will praise Him. He will reign forever and ever. Everything is good now. But is everything good for Israel now? course not. What happens to Israel both immediately on the heels of her deliverance, like 10 minutes later, and also over time? What happens? Hmm? I can't hear you. The fan just turned on. Idolatry is an example, sure. It's not, it's, it's almost immediately after she's out that she begins to pine. Israel begins to pine to return to, to Egypt. Uh, Israel disobeys the commands of God. Israel complains. They worship other gods. They fail to trust God. They forget the blessings. Remember last week in the sermon we talked about one of the most important prayer begins with blessing and blessing begins with remembrance. They forgot that. They forgot the blessings of God. And as a result, they return again and again into captivity. Well, why? What went wrong? After this great deliverance out of this evil thing, this thing that held them captive for so long, why did it seemingly fail to take? I think one of the reasons is given to us by Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus writes this, or says, says this. He doesn't write it, actually. Someone else wrote it, but he says this. When a defiling evil spirit is expelled from someone, so someone's delivered from something, it drifts along through the desert looking for an oasis, something, some unsuspecting soul that it can be devil. When it doesn't find anyone, it says, I know, I'll go back to my old haunts. On return, it finds the person spotlessly clean, but vacant. 
And then it runs out and rounds up seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they move on in, starting to whoop it up. That person ends up far worse off than if they had never gotten cleaned up in the first place. That's what this generation is like, says Jesus. You may think that you have cleaned out your junk from your lives and gotten ready for God, but you were not hospitable to my kingdom message, and now all the devils are moving back in. Deliverance from something is only part of what needs to happen. Yes, the spirit is removed. You are delivered out of something. They were delivered, Israel was delivered out of Egypt. But two things can and often do happen. First, something needs to fill the void that is now left empty. So Jesus is talking about you've made it your soul spotlessly clean, but vacant. Nothing has moved in. Someone or something needs to move into that room, and if not, the evil spirit will go out and find the place vacant and return with some of his friends to rent out the space. The other thing that can happen is that parts of what you've been delivered from can linger. No matter how hard you try to clean out the crevices of your soul, these things can find a place to hide because it's not just a physical thing but it's also emotional and psychological and spiritual. Israel was delivered physically from Egypt, but Egypt had not been delivered out of Israel. So when things started to go bad, after the victory song, when it was all over and they thought everything was going to be all right now, well, they discovered they were in a desert, which meant they had no water. And so they began to grumble and complain. They wanted to return to Egypt. So God provided them with water. But then they said, but we have no bread. We have no food. It's better to live in slavery in the past in Egypt to go back there than to die of starvation. And so God provides them with bread, with manna. But then they say, well, what about the meat? We need need protein. We can't just be vegetarians here. That's crazy. So they, they said it's better to die with our stomachs full than to die with our stomachs empty. And so God gives them meat. I love the phrase that God uses in that. He says, I'm going to give you meat till it spews out of your nostril, you ungrateful little group. Of, he didn't add that part. But. And then they say, well, God, where are you? You've, you've disappeared. We can't see you anymore. You, you seem to have disappeared for several weeks. And we, 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 don't, we don't see you anymore. We can't feel you anymore. You seem to be absent. I know what we can do. We can make our own gods. Remember the gods that we used to see all around Egypt? The gods that we used to, we used to uh, see the Egyptians praying to? We can do something like that. Does anyone have any idea of a god we could, we could, uh, we could make? And someone shouts out, yeah, let's make a, a cow. And they say, no, better yet, a calf. And they make it out of gold, and you know the story. You see, they were delivered out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in their heart and in their soul. Their whole way of being in the world, seeing it and interpreting it, was still the lens of Egypt. That's how they saw it. Why do you think it is that when they began to tell the story of creation, and they began to write it down, what was the personification of evil when they wrote down and told the story of creation? What was the personification? A serpent. Why would they pick a serpent? Why, out of all the other creatures they could have picked, why a serpent? 
I have no idea how to take that. If a train hits me now, we're in trouble. What sits on Pharaoh's crown? A serpent. They chose the serpent as a personification of evil because that was their image of evil. Egypt was still in their soul. Egypt was their worldview. It was the way they understood everything. Egypt was not removed from their heart or soul and mind just because they had crossed the sea and wandered into the desert and saw the armies die. Nothing had yet replaced Egypt in their hearts. And so Egypt kept returning in powerful ways to the point that they wanted actually to return to the previous state of captivity and even worship gods like the Egyptian gods. The demon returned and found the place nicely fixed up and clean and called his friends to live with him. When we talk about the prayer of deliverance, it's not just a prayer for from something like Egypt or a demon or sin, but it must also be deliverance to something else and deliverance for something else. Delivered to what, for what, and from what, to what, and for what. What are you being delivered from? Israel was delivered from captivity in Egypt, but it was delivered to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And it was delivered for what? For a purpose, for the formation of a nation, a people of God through whom God would then bless the whole of creation. They weren't just delivered from. But before they could get to the two and the four, they got stuck because they had not gotten Egypt out of themselves. And they had not begun to replace all that Egypt was to them with something else. Now, God saw this. God knew this in his heart. And so that's why he gave them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were never meant to be a legal or moral document, though that's often how it has been used and understood, both in the Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition. They are rules to live by, a code of moral behavior. Let's build laws around them and post them in our courts. No! No, 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 that's not the purpose of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's way of beginning to get Egypt out of Israel. It was God's way of allowing his people to live and see the world in a different way, in the way that God wanted them to see the world, not in the way that Egypt had convinced them the world was. It was God's way of rewriting something of himself on their hearts, minds, and souls. So God says, no, 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 wait here. Out with this idea of worshiping lots of gods, there's only one God. And he says, no, no graven images, no carved statues or anything like that. Just worship me in your soul. And no more endless days of work upon work upon work. No, life now is going to be shaped around rest. Sabbath, because I rested too and because I delivered you, you will have rest. God is reshaping their heart and soul and mind with these words. All of it was about rewriting what they thought they knew to know to be true with now what God has tried to reveal to them. To write on their hearts to love God and to love neighbor. That 
it is how you are to live with me and how you are to live with one another. This is the lens then through which you can understand right and wrong, good and bad, justice and holiness. Now at one time, the children of Israel had glimpses of these truths. They had heard fragments of stories about a a guy named Noah and someone named Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But it had been so long since these were in any way real for them, they had become not much more than fading shadows. Oliver Sacks, in his book, The Awakening, er, Awakenings, which was then turned into a movie with Robin Williams, made an observation when he was working with a patient who was suffering from Parkinson's disease. He discovered the healing power of music. The, the patient he was working with was a former music teacher, and through music therapy, her movement and power and personality was restored. Afterwards, she commented, as I was unmusicked, I must be remusicked. The children of Israel had lost almost in slavery and captivity, they had lost almost all they knew about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They had been unmusicked. They didn't know how to sing their praises to God. And for them to be fully delivered, they had to be remusicked again. And this is where Miriam's song becomes an important step in the deliverance journey. It was the beginning of their remusicking. They sang a song about the, the, the great, about, about the greatness and the loving provision of their God. A God they largely knew nothing about except for a few short stories. But a song that lets the people see their God again for the first time. If you go back this week and look at that song, you'll see phrases like, He is my strength and my salvation. He is my Father's God and I will exalt Him. He is great and majestic and powerful and more powerful than all the other gods. None can compare to this God. See how they're beginning to write this new God on their heart and soul. He loves His people with a steadfast love and guides them to His holy abode. He's guiding them to a place where they can live together. Phrases like, you have purchased, you have redeemed, you have delivered your people, and you will plant them in a new land, and you will let them flourish in your abode. You are worthy of praise, and you will reign forever. Now that's a lot in one song. It's so much more than a victory song. It is the beginning of the refurbishing of their hearts and souls. It's not just, it, it, is, it is not just a clearing out of the old, but a replacing it with something new. A new understanding of their God and their way of seeing the world. Unlike Jesus' warning that the people had done nothing to prepare to receive the kingdom of God after their deliverance from demons, Miriam's song does help them get started. But this process of being remusicked, refurbished in their soul, won't take days or weeks, not even years or generations. They never, in fact, were fully delivered. There was a little of Egypt that always kept with Israel. A little of the captive mentality, a slave mindset remains with them. And they return to it again and again, and to other gods, to ways of exploiting one another, and enslaving each other, including their neighbors. And as a result, they continually find themselves back in captivity again and again, be it to Babylon or Rome or to their own sins and their own fears. Which is why throughout the story of the people of Israel, they continue to look for and cry out for another deliverer. 
another like Moses, a redeemer or a savior who will truly and finally set them completely free from their captivity. And so Jesus comes in. He preaches on a mountaintop about the kingdom of God, where everything is going to look and be and behave and understood differently. He recasts the Ten Commandments, trying to pull them back from being just a moralistic law into a relationship in the kingdom. He's rewriting their hearts and souls with those words. And he goes around casting out demons, literally delivering people and setting them free from captivity. Delivered now, though, to enter into the kingdom of God, not for their own sake, but for the sake of others. He delivered them from, to, and for. And as we've seen, he gives clear warning. It's not enough to be delivered from darkness, or from a demon, or from a sin, or from an addiction. It's not enough for, it to be take, for you to be taken out of its grasp. It must also be removed from you. you. And you must fill that space, that void in your soul, that is left vacant with something else, or it will return. You will fall back into your old ways, your old sins, your old desires, your old ways of seeing the world. You will continue uh, to, to see others as an enemy or an opposition rather than fellow beloved children of God. So the question then is this. What do, then do you fill the space with? It's not a trick question. Go with what's in your gut right now. What do you fill that space with? Hmm? Yeah, gold star. You fill that space with Jesus. That's why Jesus talks about, let me live in you, let me dwell in you, let me come into you, abide in me that I may abide in you. Take me into your heart. That's why he's saying that. Because he says he wants to fill that void with himself. Let Jesus move in, not the demon. So what does this have to do with us today and how does this tie into our 100 days of prayer? Well, I'm not sure what this has to do with you personally. But I do invite you and challenge you to think about this, about yourself and about the church this week. Think about the things that you may need to be delivered from and the church may need to be delivered from. I think we have, uh, so this week, uh, something, uh, Andy mentioned it, it's going to be sent out to you. There are paper copies too. You can talk to Allison. Um, but this is what you're being invited to participate in this week as you consider these questions of deliverance. And I think we have, do we have it up on the screen? Do we? Did that get put in? It did. So Sunday, today, pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you something of the truth that Jesus is the deliverer. Perhaps start with a prayer like, Dear Heavenly Father, come Holy Spirit, and let him see what it means that Jesus is the deliverer, my deliverer, the deliverer of the world. Then on Monday, pray that you would understand more of the depths of deliverance by way of the Exodus story. Reread the Exodus story. Go back, and and, and if you don't want to read the whole thing, at least read Miriam's song. Pray that the scripture would speak to you. We're, We're... we, we were reminded in the sermon that, that even more than getting out of Egypt, those who have been slaves need to get Egypt out of them. They, need to be redeem, they, they needed redeemed ways of seeing and thinking in a different way. So pray for eyes to see and for an understanding heart. On Tuesday, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you 
some of what you need to be delivered from. Maybe it's patterns of thought and speech, judgmental ways of seeing others, anger, fear, suffering, sickness, addictions, shame, guilt, patterns of behavior, complacency. I can give you a longer list if you wish. On Wednesday, pray for the deliverance of others. Where in the world do you see oppression? And how can you pray that others may be delivered and redeemed? On Thursday, read over and read and pray over the following verse from Psalm 134. I sought the Lord. He answered me and delivered me from my fears. Take some time to pray about each of those phrases. Dear Lord, I have sought you. I have done this one thing, and you have heard me and delivered me. Then on Friday, pray for deliverance over the ways and fears and concerns of the world. Pray for Sutherland Church. That we would be delivered from simply following entrenched ways of seeing and thinking. Pray for release of insight and creativity and joy. And on Saturday, pray that God would reveal to you ways in which to pray prayers of deliverance for other people in the church. Um, Allison, do you want to? Now, yes, you're going to receive this list by email and, and stuff, but it's always a possibility that you hear that list, you think that's a good idea, and you go out and you kind of forget to look at it during the week. So um, Allison's going to play a song for us by Rich Mullins called My Deliverer is Coming. I invite you to listen to the words, but also think about one of these areas of prayer that may have just spoken to you this morning. What does it mean that Jesus is deliverer? What of Egypt has to get out of you? What do you need to be delivered from? Where do you see the need for deliverance elsewhere in the world? How can you pray for deliverance for Sutherland and for the people who are here? Take one of those lines, let it ruminate in your heart as you listen to this song. My deliverer is coming.